Hey, welcome to episode 82 of Running Matters Podcast. We're at uh, beautiful Gaimia Allied Health Centre today, another change of scene. And uh, our special guest today is Jamie Hewittich. How are you, mate? Um, good, thanks. Good. good. Good to be here. Thank you for joining us. I'll, uh, just before we start, I'm going to put a quick shout out to a couple of previous podcast uh, interviewees. So, well done to Ben Duffus on uh, winning the six foot track on the weekend. Very impressive time of three hours and 20 minutes in some pretty tough conditions so amazing job beating Benny St Lawrence home by about 30 seconds so very very impressive time Ben well done uh, Jared Clifford broken another of his own world records with three minutes and 41 seconds for the 1500 meters uh, just keeps getting better and better well congratulations Jared and Rowan Browning uh, second Australian male to, to run under 10 seconds for the 100 metres, so ran a 9.95 just the other week. Um, a little bit wind assisted, so not a qualifier for the Olympics, but bloody, bloody fast. So well done, Rowan. That's very impressive too, mate. Some, uh, some, some good interviews to check back on if you have some time to revisit those ones. Uh, quickly thank our podcast partners, Goo Energy, Fractel Performance Headwear, Sydney Brewery, Gaimia Allied Health Centre, Base Camp Altitude, Precision Hydration, Renala, and Raid Light. And we'll chat a little bit more to Alex from Raid Light at some stage through the interview to talk about their amazing stuff. I've been running in a couple of their bits and pieces and it really is good gear. Uh, get on and, and pick up your discounts from the, uh, from the show notes if you'd like to. So our guest, uh, Jamie Hilditch today, uh, originally from the UK, was obviously drawn to the red sand of Australia because he's been tearing it up almost since he's been over here. One of two people to run twice from Alice Springs to Uluru along the track, uh, 530 k's of some pretty punishing conditions. I'll uh, find out why he came back for more. Um, yeah, uh, tell, tell us how you got into this running caper in the first place, mate. Yeah, well, I guess the running caper started when I was a young kid. Um, uh, I think I worked out pretty quick that going out for a run with dad on Sunday morning was a was a way of not being dragged off to Sunday school with mum, which was <laughs> the, uh, the the other punishment. And uh, I guess I ran I ran a lot through school, and then I stopped as a kind of went to uni, found beer, played rugby, and uh, just sort of I guess got it out of shape or into the wrong shape to to run effectively, and. Um, I didn't really do anything again until I flew out to Australia to live in 2009 and uh, three weeks after I arrived I ran um, uh, the North Face 100 as oh, it was right. then, Okay. so the old UTA yep. 100 course. Um, I'd never been to the Blue Mountains, I'd never run 100 Ks mm. and I didn't do anything for about five years after that. <laughs> took, a, took a lot of recovery. And knocked you out of it. Oh, I spent a lot of time out there. It was, um, yeah, was uh, was an uncomfortable experience. So, so yeah. apart from the the tourist aspect, of going <laughs> to the Blue Mountains, what uh, possessed you to jump in a hundred k ultra at that point? Um, I'd ran a couple of sort of stage races, I guess. They were sort of there's a company in the UK. I don't know if they're still around called VO Two, and um, they did. Uh, the Jurassic Coast Challenge, the Atlantic Coast Challenge, and they were just like three marathons, three days, um, all off-road along the along the coast paths, which okay. was beautiful. Really enjoyed those, and I thought 
in all of my ignorance, what could be the difference between that and 100 k's in the mountains? Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, I found out. A <laughs> <laughs> couple more climbing bits. Uh, yeah, stairs. stairs yeah. yeah, stairs. I got pretty short legs. Yeah, so those up. stairs where they're all different lengths and different heights. Yeah, yeah. I know Nelly's Glen well. Oh. <laughs> Horrible part of the world. <laughs> it's beautiful to look at. That's right. So, so you had some experience there. You weren't a complete novice at that point. No, no, I wasn't a complete novice. Um, although the state of my feet and my back from my bag were, yeah, they would oh, suggest right. I had no idea what I was doing. Yeah, right, you got to learn these lessons the hard way. Yeah. I uh, certainly learned where my chafe points are over the years, that's for sure. <laughs> Nothing, nothing Vaseline and a bit of, bit of tape can't fix that. That's right. And, and so after, I mean, during that period of time, 2009 through to 2015, what, what were you doing? You were just hanging out in Bondi like the rest of the Brits? Yeah, I was yeah. working. Um, I mean, I, I, guess, I guess the thing that I sort of talk about running around is that I'm not a, like a professional runner. I've never been a professional sportsman. I'm just a dad who lives at home with his two kids, had a full-time job, really busy corporate job, travelled a lot, and just ran when I could, but it was all for fun. Um, and then, yeah, then 2015, the same mate who I did the North Face 100 with phoned from the UK and said, oh, there's a race called the Big Red Run in, uh, in the Simpson Desert. Do you want to come and do it? So we signed up for that, and that was sort of the first thing that I'd, the first time I'd really done any serious running or, or got the level of enjoyment out of it mm. that made me realise it was something I wanted to do on a more permanent basis. Mm. So that was kind of the starting point for the, all, the really. catalyst. And, yeah. and so what was the draw card with the Big Red Run? Um, what, explain the, uh, the mechanics of that one. So the Big Red Run... Um, unfortunately it's finished now but it used to be um, five stages 250 k's mm -hmm. very similar to a marathon de Saab kind of format yeah. um, so I think it was a marathon day one day two day three 35 k's on day four and then an 84 84 and a half k day mm -hmm. and then a, a kind of social that was the end of the racing and a social run back to Birdsville in the morning and, uh, just what you want after 250k yeah exactly social yeah. Run. yeah if you're not going to time me I'm not running <laughs> I'm just going to walk but uh, you know so that was good it was really friendly there was it was mainly a sort of like a mass participation charity event really um, we all slept in tents in a camp they it wasn't self-supported mm -hmm. so they moved a bag for us so I'd put whatever kit I wanted in a bag up to 14 kilos yeah and they'd move that on a truck and I just carried what I needed for the day. It's so yeah. like a basic first aid kit and a bit of bit of food. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and I kind of look back on that now and I remember trying to pack and just thinking, well, how am I going to get everything into a bag 14 kilos? Mm -hmm. And now I look back and I'm like, what did I put in there that weighed yeah, yeah. up to 14 kilos? I think I had like tins of food and stuff. So, yeah. <laughs> tins weigh a lot. Tins yeah. weigh a lot. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting, um, I guess looking back at those sort of, not mistakes, but just sort of teething problems along the way. And, and I find now information is much easier to come by. So there's lots of people you can ask these things. So you don't have to make those mistakes the hard way anymore if you're prepared to ask the right questions, I suppose. But yeah, certainly uh, myself the same, you know, going through all that sort of genesis of 
used to take mandarins and apples and all this sort of other massive <laughs> food in my pack. And now I just get away with, you know, a bit of water, a couple of gels. It's pretty lightweight. So, yeah. yeah, look back and laugh fondly. Yeah, yeah, that's it. There's a lot of lessons from that first run, that's for sure. And, and, and by the sound of it, you pretty beaten up by the red, big red run, I'm sure. Yeah, I made really early rookie mistakes. Um, I bought a pair of great shoes, but I bought them to fit snugly, thinking, hey, I don't want my feet to move around, which in 40 degree heat in the sand Mm -hmm. turned into a messy uh, experience, even on day one. So I ran very heavily bandaged um, for for most of that run. Mm. Um, I took food that was okay to eat during the day if you're in Sydney, but once you get to 35, 40 degree heat, yeah. It just was inedible. The dry white toast isn't quite as good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, I took actually sachets of tuna and I was just eating them when I'm running in Sydney, which yeah. was fine. Yeah. But when you're dehydrated or it's 30, 40 degrees, it's like, yeah, you don't want that anywhere near you. <laughs> My mouth's making a certain noise just thinking about it. <laughs> Getting enough saliva up there. Yeah. Wow, wow, fantastic. Wow. And look, I mean, for all the, you know, laughing about rookie errors or whatever. Obviously that race gave you some motivation to kick on and continue to do that sort of stuff. What was it about that race that, you know, drew you to the rest of your running career, I suppose? Yeah, I mean that was that's definitely the, the big turning point for me. Um what I realised is being out in the desert for five days, firstly I loved being out in the wild. Mm-hmm. I've always kind of liked the mountains and stuff, but never spent a lot of time in the desert. And uh, being out there and basically you're kind of exploring, but in a really safe and controlled environment. Mm. Um, So I really enjoyed that. I enjoyed camp life. And I met a whole bunch of people who all loved the same things for the same reasons. Mm. Um, You know, there was a couple of very top athletes out there that that year um, who have gone on to do awesome things. but it was everyday people out there pushing themselves and they were all kind of suffering the same experience or experiencing the same suffering. Mm. And they became really, really good close friends. Mm. And, you know, six years on, there's still people who, you know, we follow each other's runs and we run together quite a lot. And that team or the camaraderie is what has kept me particularly going back to um, the stage races but also just the general track uh, trail running mm. community. Just, so that's that's the main driver. Yeah, it's an interesting community. Obviously, these races are very much individual sports, but there really does seem to be a, a team aspect. Everyone, like you say, they're all out there hurting and they're all prepared to share what they have. And uh, there's not too many egos out there when when it comes down to it. So we're pretty blessed to be part of that, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It pretty strips on your ego out pretty quick when yeah, you're in that mess. That's right. <laughs> and everyone's had that, you know, that messy experience, that dark moment or whatever. Where yeah. They've been pretty vulnerable. And um, yeah, and we're all happy to chat about it at the end of the day. So yeah, yeah it's, it's good. And, and so obviously you, you were motivated enough to jump in and do the big red run the following year. Um, did you have any changes in your preparation leading up to the second one? Did you learn some lessons? Yeah, definitely. I mean, apart from the, apart from the kind of physical punishment lessons that I learned through through bad kit choices or or not really knowing how to look after myself, my feet, chafing that kind of stuff. Um, 
I'd kind of pushed myself at that point further mentally, I think, than I had in the past. And that 2015, 2016 year in my life was a, was a big changing um, time. Mm-hmm. Um, actually separated from my wife that year. And I decided that I was gonna run. I left my banking job that I'd, I'd always had. I had that for 25 plus years. Mm-hmm. And didn't really know what to do. Um, and as part of leaving Part of leaving that career, I um, got the opportunity to be involved with an executive coach. And we went through all sorts of different thought processes. And what I basically learned sitting in his office was I'd never, I'd, I'd never made any choices in life around what I wanted to do or where I wanted to go. Mm. It'd just been, you know, someone threw up an opportunity and I either liked it or didn't like it. If I liked it, I took it. If I didn't, then I didn't do it. Um, and suddenly I had a changed family environment, so not the same drive and ambition that I'd had in the career where I could say, oh, well, it's for the family, mm. and also the change in, in career. So I had heaps and heaps of options um, available to me, and I didn't have any way of deciding what was a good idea, what was a bad idea, or what I wanted to do mm. with such a vast range of choices. Um, so he took me through goal setting exercises, things that I want, things I didn't want, how do I want to live. And through that process, we came to a point where I knew I wanted to carry on with the running because that had been kind of the highlight of, of the previous couple of years. And, um, but I wanted to take that really seriously and see how far I could go with it. And, uh, and that really led me into coaching myself. Mm. So not coaching running, but mental mindset coaching and lifestyle coaching as it's become, mm. um, as I've learned more about it. And through that learning process, when I went and studied to be a coach, um, a lot of the lessons were supposed to be corporate type lessons, but they were so relevant to the running and the preparation. So putting a framework together, choosing your goal, working out how you're gonna to get to your goal, and I basically developed a, a framework that allowed me knowing myself, because I'm pretty lazy, I'm not very self-motivated, and I'm really bad when the goal is a long way away. Mm. So to build a framework to allow me to manage myself to progress um, was one of the biggest changes that I made mm. going into 2016 Big Red Run. Um, and I basically through that said, okay, I wanna go, I wanna be a runner, and I want to go and run the Big Red Runs 2016 and see what that ends up looking like. Mm. But it's a year away. So I signed up for four races, three, either three or four races, three or four months apart in the year leading up to that with the expectation that it's the race was close enough. So I'd train, I'd go and run, I'd have a great result, be motivated by the great result and train for the next one and go on and on and so forth. And um, I worked really well. I had my best, probably one of my best years of running, 15 to 16, because I was motivated. I didn't have any distraction. Um, And yeah, I had some great results. Um, But I had some, I had a couple of very distinctive shockers as well. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember my last last run going into the big red run was uh, UTA 50. Mm -hmm. And I'd been up on the course, trained on it heaps, 
the races that I'd done prior to that in 2015 qualified me in the first wave. So, you know, I was pretty excited about that. And I was standing next to some of the elite runners and I was like, well, this is awesome. So I went off with them. Obviously, you go down to the bottom of uh, Narrow, Neck. Narrow Neck, yeah, and then back up. And by the time we came back past the 7K point at the turning to Scenic World, I was uh, still near the front and in bits. I was dying a death really quickly. <laughs> and uh, I think I ran, I think I actually only ran moving for like six hours. Mm-hmm. And I was out there for eight. Yeah, right. And I lay on the ground with cramp oh. for, a, well, two hours mm-hmm. of non-traveling time. Yeah. You're going out too fast, mate. And the stairs, man. The stairs. When you've smashed yourself and then you go, oh, yeah. So there we go. Brutal. Brutal. <laughs> but once again, you know, good lessons to learn, I, I suppose. So, you know, pacing is an important aspect of it. Some of us learn it quicker than others, but, uh, you know, <laughs> hopefully we all get there in the end. Yeah. And look, I, I think that, um, that, that idea of, uh, you know, sport or running, for example, being a good mirror for other aspects of your life is a really important lesson too, you know, as far as the determination, goal setting, what have you. And that's why I think encouraging... You know, kids to, to, to stick with sport, that sort of stuff. It just gives them so many skills yeah. for life regarding going out and getting what they want, I suppose. It's a, it's a yeah. big, big factor. So, once again, good lessons to learn. Um, I've, I've got a, a quote that you use on your website, and I know it's not your <laughs> quote, but I, yeah, I like it a lot. So, when I let go of who I am, I become who I want to be. Um, some sort of Chinese proverb, I imagine. Uh, was it difficult to shed the old mindsets and practices and move into a new phase of your life? Or do you think the new Jamie Hildridge was always in there wanting to pop out at some stage? Um, oh, that's a great question. Uh, yeah, I, look, I think, I, think, I think it was there in the first, kind of when I first left uni. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was kind of the person in the office that people would ask for help from. And I, you know, I don't know how long in my career that sort of um, mindset lasted. It's a, it's a, it's a quite can be quite a punishing um, work environment. Um, it's very competitive. So th- I think it was definitely there early on and um, disappeared for for most of that career, most of that time I spent in the bank. Um, but transitioning back has also been very difficult because and it's not because um it's not necessarily because it's mindset work but it's more mindset work is a huge kind of um arena of all different mm. of all different possibilities and deciding what i wanted to do within that space so did i want to specialize in in sports people and high performance or you know did i um want to talk just to ceos and and the c suite executives that was really hard to try and work out what my offering was going to be. And that's really um, where the work pressures have come, is, is what is what is work for me? What does it look like? Um, the lessons I took from it personally have been fantastic. And I think that's a big driver for me wanting to continue with the business, is that I feel that I've learned so much about myself and now, I mean, especially in the running space, feel like I've achieved more than I would have done if I hadn't become a coach. Mm-hmm. 
and I want to share that. That's kind of the driver for yeah. continuing with it. Excellent. Yeah, it's good. And I, I'm, I'm assuming there's plenty of listeners out there with their own sort of dreams and goals and potentially afraid to sort of, you know, even look at that. What, what would you suggest as a, a starting point there for someone to, um, I guess, get out of that, that systematic rut and have a look at what their, their, their big scary goal might be? Um, well, staying in your rut's a comfort space. And you, I mean, I think there's so much out there on social media these days, but it's true that if you're not pushing your boundaries and you're not stepping outside that comfort zone, then you're probably not growing as an individual. And there's a lot of fear and a lot of inertia involved in in stepping outside that space. Mm. Um, But once you've decided that you're going to step out of it, then looking for someone to offer you a framework or... um, yeah, or, or researching yourself what the possibilities are and just go for that goal because what I've learned through this and through the running particularly I mean you, you know you run yourself there's a lot of people out there who support you in a running endeavor it's not individual you know you've got professional medical people you've got nutritionists you've got you know, other people to guide you in what you're doing but ultimately, you're still the only person who can carry yourself across the finish line. And uh, and that's the same with all of your goals. You know, there's people out there to help you. There's resources for you to read. But it's uh, you're the only person who can actually go and do it. Mm. And uh, I'd say just just reach out to people who will help you and, and go for it. Awesome questions. It's good. Yeah. That's good. I like the framework idea. It's fantastic. Um, so, obviously... You know, the, this training and this sort of new mindset made a massive difference. We've, we've had a, a pretty rough big red run in 2015 and then second place for 2016, mate. So very, very impressive. Yeah, um, thank you. And and picked by a bit of a legend of the sport in Elizabeth Barn as well. So in good company there. Yeah, it was, it was a, an easy second place to take to her. But. Yeah. <laughs> mate, and, and then... Obviously, you hadn't had enough of the Australian desert at this point, so you looked on to the next challenge, the next uh, box to tick, which was the track. Um, can you tell us a little bit about you know, just how big a step forward that, yeah. that race is? Yeah, um, so everything that I'd done to that point was supported. Mm-hmm. So somebody else carried your kit. Um, the difference stepping into the track is that it's self-supported. So you carry your um, medical kit, all of your cooking kit, all of your food, um, your sleeping bag, sleeping mat, any spare clothes you want with you, Mm. medical kit. So you you end up carrying between 8 and 10 kilos of weight. Um, It's double the distance, so it's 530 k's or 527 or something, um, over nine stages done in 10 days. Mm. So... In terms of a big step up, I mean, it's distance and it's really the planning and preparation. Mm. So instead of throwing in my tins of food in my bag and having someone carry them, I found that a lot of the preparation was really getting nutritional density or specifically calorie density. Um, So I wanted the lightest amount of food I could carry that gave me the the calories I needed. Mm -hmm. And when I say the calories I needed... Um, the rules of those races for that company are that you have to carry a minimum of 2,000 calories per day. So 2,000 calories when you're running in 40 degree heat for eight hours 
is not very much. No. no. Um, yeah, so I was burning around seven and a half to eight and a half thousand calories a day um, with the heat and the carrying mm. kit, and I was having two two thousand to two thousand three hundred. Mm. So yeah, it's 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 a brutal way to to run that distance um, without the support. But I lost uh, nearly ten kilos in nine days. Wow. So, Great way to prep for summer if anyone's up wow. for, for getting out <laughs> that there. That is an extreme weight loss program. It's yeah. Basically controlled starvation for 10 days. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And the guy, I mean, that's run by a company called Canal Aventure out of France. And um, Jerome Lollier is the owner and race director for all those races. Mm-hmm. And I spoke to him and he said, look, I, you know, I want it to be a physical and a mental journey. You know, it's got to be difficult or there's no point in doing it. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, he runs a brutal five race series, which is it's awesome, but it's it's pretty out there. And we'll have a, we'll have a chat about the uh, the series and the difficulties getting to some of these races in a sec. But I <laughs> I, I, I want to chat about some practicalities around the track, I, I suppose first. So, I mean, Cap, you say you can't carrying two thousand calories per day, but you had to carry five days worth of food, did you not at a time? So you. Huge amounts of weight and load there. Yeah. What, what kind of stuff makes up your 2,000 calories in a day? What are you, what are you eating out of it? It's nothing you'd eat at home, no. that's for sure. Um, so, yeah, I managed to get 2,000 calories into 500 grams really? of weight. Wow. So two and a half kilos of food for five days, and then you get a resupply yeah. on the night of day five going into day six. Um, things like protein shakes so I take a double hit of protein shakes mm-hmm. in the morning and um, and uh, salami sticks okay yeah. or the sort of the Europeans call them the beefies yeah they're beefy twiggy sticks or yeah, whatever they're called yeah. Yeah. yeah so uh, so that that would be breakfast and I basically built a spreadsheet because it's the only way to track that amount of food mm. um, so I'd have that for breakfast um, have uh, gels have liquids as a sort of tailwind nutrition on the way on the actual run itself and I love jelly snakes so I just have bags of jelly snakes yeah. um, and then returning to camp which would be kind of five or six hours later um, I'd have sort of bag of dried Maggie noodles mm-hmm. kind of thing um, another protein shake because it's just a really easy way to get uh, get the calories in and then an evening meal was something like um, a continental dehydrated pasta mm-hmm. or dehydrated rice, and I'd throw in some curry powder or some chili powder and uh, and soak up the rest of the water with um, sort of a Deb continental mash yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. So you basically, and I didn't really vary much from that for yeah. the whole ten days. Mm. And I don't mind that yeah, so much. Yeah. All right, I've got a quote about that. I say, I'm not the best person to talk about flavour as I'm quite happy to eat the same food day after day, <laughs> which is obviously, you, you know, you, you were born for such a race. Um, and I'm very much the same when it, when it comes to, you know, getting the job done, I guess, you know. Yeah. You know I hear people talking about this idea of flavour fatigue and it's just such a bizarre foreign concept to me. I mean, you... In my mind, you're just fueling a race. Yeah. Putting petrol in a car. I don't give a shit what it tastes like because I'm only <laughs> out there for 
12 hours, say, to 100 k's, whatever that is. Yeah. And when you're out there for a significant amount longer, but yeah. do you think there's too much credence given to the idea of it's got to taste different or a certain way or just whinging for the sake of it? I've got to be careful how I answer that. <laughs> um, no, I mean, my, my feeling on those lengths of races is that if you struggle to live in camp, you're going to struggle with the race yeah. altogether. Um, I don't consider... I don't consider any of these races, sorry, I don't consider my participation in these races really about running talent. It's about your ability to endure eating the same food every day, living in the same clothes every day, mm. sleeping in a tent every night. It's, it's basically being able to put up with discomfort yeah. and then you've got to run during the day. Mm. Um, so yeah, there are a lot of people who don't like to eat the same food. It's the same as trying to feed your kids, right? It's, it's just doesn't taste good it's not going in and probably a runner on day seven is pretty much the same as a petulant child anyway so <laughs> yeah, day three, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny <laughs> what about um directions out on trail like how, how many people are in this race um i think the first time i did it was about 45 so like there was 80 the first time in the big red run i think it was 45 in the track mm. the first year and i think maybe Maybe thirty-two or thirty-four okay. in the in the second in two thousand and nineteen. So, so there, you know, potentially be times when you're, you're literally out there on your own in a, in a big expanse. Most a lot of the time, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so how how well signposted is this thing? Like, is it, is it easy to get lost? Um, people do get lost, mm-hmm. but then people get lost on a fifty k trail run during the day, right? Yeah. Um, it can, yeah. It, most of those are really well marked mm. and we don't have the same problems as some areas where there's other people so nobody's removing the signs or moving mm. the markers or um but i think because of the distances you're covering so like the longest stage in the track is 137 k's and it's the last stage yeah. they don't you know they may mark every 500 750,000 meters mm. and if you know, depending on how they've done the marking or how they've approached the track, the the decision of where to mark can can impact how quickly you see it. Mm-hmm. I'm not very tall, right? So it doesn't take much. You can have like a, a bush, and I can't see the the marker. So, yeah. um, but no, generally speaking, um, it's it's pretty well signposted, and you'd have to go pretty horribly off track to not be able to find a marker. Yeah. Okay. Good. Yeah, because I yeah. obviously people. Are, isolated deprived of calories and water you know a fair bit of responsibility to make sure those people are okay yeah yeah i've had a couple of panic times where i've been shouting out hoping that i'm going in the right direction and it's mainly because of fatigue Mm. you start to panic and just uh yeah and it happens like you say it can happen in a 10k race quite comfortably you know um and look at that point are you in communication with the race director or something like that like is there a safety mechanism in place the safety mechanism really i mean they're really well crewed so mm-hmm. there's there's two professional doctors mm-hmm. who rove between um checkpoints there's checkpoints every probably 12 to 18 k's sometimes you might go 20 k's if the track's difficult to get vehicles into yeah. but generally speaking you'll see somebody at least every 15 k's mm. um you do spend a lot of time on your own yeah 
because it is a long way and there's not that many people. So you can have, you can be out for the whole day and only see the checkpoint people. Um, I mean, I know the, the front guy in 2017, he, he probably saw nobody after the first 10Ks every day. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty tough too. Yeah. Very isolated. Yeah. Very isolated. Um, want to talk a little bit about kit, I suppose. Okay. It sounds like some proper minimalism going on there. <laughs> uh, and obviously you want to keep you know weight down as much as humanly possible. Yeah. Are you literally wearing the same clothes for 10 days straight? Um, oh, I'm sorry, mum. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> basically. Um, well, in 2017... I took two pairs of socks because mm-hmm. I was like, okay, if I get a pair wet, you know, I want to be able to change them or whatever. And mm-hmm. I didn't really, it wasn't because they'd be stinky after 10 days. I hadn't really gone that far with the thought process. Yeah. And I did get the, I got the first pair wet on day one and melted them, drying them by the fire. So, oh, wow. so I did have one pair for 10 days anyway. Okay. And yeah. then in 2019, I didn't even bother. I just took one pair. Yeah, and ironically, going back in 2019, it was um, very, very wet. Mm-hmm. So it had been completely dry in 2017. Yeah. And then it was torrential rain and deep water in 2019. Yeah, wow, well, completely different race. Yeah. There you yeah. go. And, and look, I mean, I guess on that note of same clothes for the entire time, and you're living in camp, are some people just worse off than others in the smell department, or is everyone just in a combined camaraderie stank <laughs> at this point I think um, I don't know I mean if, I don't know how much time you spent in the outback but the one thing with the outback out there at that time of year is flies mm-hmm. and there's thousands and thousands of flies and they just live on everybody for the whole race mm-hmm. and I think because we all kind of start to stink at the same rate by the time you get to day three day four day five you all smell the same I think in the track, the time when it became most noticeable is um, on day, on stage nine, we run through Curtain Springs, which is kind of the first habitat, you know, habitat or habitated place that we go through. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was tourists at the at the little kind of Coke um, little bar thing that they had there, and just the faces of some of these tourists when we walked in just said everything <laughs> so whilst we couldn't smell each other yeah. i think i think we would we would put off a bit of a smell the roving caravan yeah oh, exactly sounds horrific <laughs> <laughs> and, and i believe you're also sharing a tent for some of this stuff too yeah all of the races pretty much all the races anything i've done is is tent sharing yeah okay yeah, yeah. so i'm close and personal there yes we've got a um uh, a previous guest, Jenna Gen- Louise Salkard, has uh, asked me to ask you about your experience sharing a tent with her. Um, it, sounded, it sounded eventful. Um, yeah, look, I mean, Jenna blew my mind, right? Was, I talked a little bit about it on the first, on, on her interview. Um, we met, we, we met a, a kind of her work and we chatted quite a bit about different things to do, different adventures to have. And she asked me about doing some ultra running and, and um, you know, we were looking really for a race for her to do for the first time. And she, she said, well, what are you doing next? And I said, well, I'm doing the track, which is this 530K self-supported. 
And uh, my recommendation to her was, a, you know, probably wouldn't pick it as my first ultra, but... And the next time I met up with her to talk about what else was going on, um, she said, oh, I'm, I'm coming. And I was like, geez, right, okay. So, um, yeah, so we ended up sharing a tent, which was awesome. It was great to have... It's great to have someone out there um, who you know. And so 2017, it was my first one, but it went reasonably well. In 2019, I went back less prepared, underprepared. Mm -hmm. um, I'd sort of negated the, or ignored the, um, the benefits of having put two years of racing under my belt going into 2017. Mm -hmm. In 2019, I shouldn't have been out there. Um, I had easily the hardest race I've ever had. Um, I was broken on day one, mm -hmm. and it's a 10-day race. And um, I cramped, I got ill. I was pretty sick for 24 hours. And I think having Jenna out there um, made a huge difference. Because it's just, you know, there was four, five, there was probably eight people out there that I knew who I'd either raced with before or was friends with from Sydney. Um, yeah, it was, it was really good, really great to just have someone, you know, who, uh, who I knew. Mm -hmm. um, she is messy. <laughs> She's like, all of her kit out of a bag every night and I was like oh, what if I moved into a <laughs> but um no, I think we, I think we gave you some steam out the hairdryer at some point so yeah yeah I, yeah, I didn't see the hairdryer <laughs> I think she maybe left that in the uh, in the <laughs> other bags I'm glad to hear it I'm glad to hear it oh funny mate uh, we, we should uh, take this opportunity quickly to jump over and have a chat with uh, Alex from Raidlight about uh his partnership with uh, the podcast and um, partnership with yourself as well for, for your upcoming project. So we'll duck over there now. Okay, here we are with uh, Alex Piggott from Raid Light Australia. How are you, mate? Good, how are you? Yeah, really well. Mate, thank you so much for uh, jumping on as a podcast partner with Running Matters for, for 2021. It's great to have you on board. It's awesome to be here. Thanks for inviting us. No, no worries, mate. I've, I've, I've used plenty of the gear in the past and it's some quality stuff, so uh, I wouldn't be pushing it if I didn't think so. Um, so tell us a little bit about the Raid Light brand, Alex. Uh, well, it was started in 98 by Benoit Laval. I probably just destroyed his name. I'm sorry. I apologise. Um, <laughs> it's, it's made in France, obviously, by Frenchmen. Uh He's a trail runner, done uh, uh, UTMB a few times. He's also got a degree in um, in fabric engineering, which I didn't even know was a thing. But anyway, wow. um, <laughs> um, so yeah, he started Road Light um, and started with the packs, like the, um, the stage racing packs, um, and it kind of grew from there. Um, and Rosignol bought them five years ago, and but which is great news for us last year in October, he bought it back, okay. um, which is good. Um, it's really nice to work with a small group of, of people. Um, mm. And he, he's the, you know, he's the be all and end all of it. Um, so, yeah, and we, we got the gig in Australia last year, um, just when COVID started, which was good, but. Um, good timing, good timing. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, now, now we're just trying to push it in Australia because yeah, basically we like it. <laughs> yeah, mate, it's it's really hard not to like, and I guess the uh, 
you know, the, the Masters in Fabric Technology or whatever that was actually really plays out well in the gear. Like, it's some seriously lightweight and well-put-together stuff. Like, it, for how light it is, it, it really does feel quite indestructible. So they're doing something yeah. like well, I, I, about three or four years ago, I imported a pack for myself to run with the 18 litre. And when it arrived, you thought, my God, it's, it's light, but it's, is it going to hold up? And a few, few runs I've done through the bush and stuff and touch wood, we haven't any, no rips, rips or anything like that. So, um, but yeah, they're pushing the envelope, like the next year's range coming out is they've got a hundred gram fully tape seam cell hood um, waterproof jacket. Um, which is, you know, is, yeah, really competitive on the market. And they're packed. Yeah. Yeah. So they've got a a, um, 12 litre that comes in about 200 grams, 12 litre race vest. Um, uh, Yeah. So they're they're good. Uh, I mean, I love them that every, every season we see that they're developing, that they're not just kind of sitting on, sitting back and, you know, change the color and call it a new pack they're actually progressing um yeah. which yeah it's awesome to see um yeah mate, and, and they really do have some cool innovations uh, on that on that pack I've, I've been using the 12 liter pack which i bought in france actually when i was over yeah. there um just the the tightening system with the uh, that sort oh, of lacing, lacing system around the sides it's yeah. unbelievable like you feel like a, a proper pro just being able to tighten this thing up <laughs> and then when you need to drop it off and fill it up again, just pull them yeah, open. It's magic. Yeah, the, the boa system. Yeah, I don't know about you, but I, I'm I'm small. I'm I'm tiny, and it, it's really good. Yeah, your your pack's full at the start of the day, and as it starts shrinking, you can tighten it up so it stops flopping around. Mm, um, yeah. But yeah, it, it, yeah, they're really well thought out packs, and yeah, Fair the boa system so. is continuing through into the next season as well. So. Yeah, people love and, people love the clicking noise. Yeah, like you say, it makes them feel like a like a pro. That's <laughs> right. It's this uh, little alpha move that I like to pull around my mates. You know, to <laughs> let them know who's boss. <laughs> <laughs> like, and, and you get to give it a fair old crack out in the Blue Mountains. Where, whereabouts are you, Alex? I uh, we're based. Well, I'm based in Katoomba. Um, so yeah, I now with you know working from home primarily, which is great. You get to live in Katoomba and yeah we I do a fair bit of stuff up here um done you know but we did we've got the 12 foot track on again another month we're going to give that another crack um so I took my 18 later on that um we've done we've got the if they ever open it we've got the uh, Katoomba to Mittagong but um like everyone else we're waiting for parks to open that up but um, yeah yeah I was at about 250k something like that no, not that far. Uh, one's one forty. I'm going to say something. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, with a bit of bush bashing in there as well, so it's okay. always good for a laugh. Yeah, sounds, sounds challenging. And mate, we're we're right in the middle of uh, chatting with Jamie Hilditch, who uh, is a Ray Lighting ambassador. Um, he's been yeah, very glowing on the gear, and it hopefully get him from Broken Hill to to Bondi yeah. in one piece. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, he's he's doing some amazing stuff in, in that kit. Um, yeah, we're super psyched for him. Yeah, he, it, yeah, it's it's for a good cause as well, and, and yeah, nice guy. So you can't really, you know, you can't really walk away from that. You can't go wrong. And he's been, he's been using the stage racing stuff for 
I don't know how many years. I don't want to disclose how old he is, but um, yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, so he, he came to us because he loved the gear and, you know, when he laid out what he was planning this year, we couldn't say no, basically. Um, no, it's a good fit. It's perfect. Light, lightweight. You know, it's, it's what he's all about. So <laughs> spot on. And I, I tell you, the, the, the one other thing that I love about that, uh, that kit is the, the way you've designed the flasks. Just those little straws popping up from the top. So you don't actually have to bend down or move a great deal to get your, uh, get your hydration in. It's just yep. such a well-designed uh, well designed flask. And some of the other ones you sort of, you know, flapping around trying to get down some squeezing things. This one you just literally turn your head to the side, the straw's there, have, have a little sip and away you go. So really well designed. Yeah, I think it all comes back to... Uh, Benoit in terms of he's a runner so and he's a designer so he you know he designs stuff for running rather than designing something that looks cool he designs something that's functional um well not that I don't think they look cool but I think yeah that's what most people when they look at the gear realize that it's it's made by a runner it's not made by an engineer as such um yeah that's what I yeah. love about it. it. It certainly comes across, just all the, all the little bits and pieces that you think, oh, I really like that, and it's, it's just there waiting for you. So yeah. Um, anyway, so we've got, a, got a, a bit of a deal for our listeners, obviously, on the Raidlight website. So raidlight.com.au. So there's, there's clothes, there's, there's kit, there's equipment, there's, there's everything you can think of that you need for trail running. Um, and if you type in running matters, or one word, 20, uh, there's, there's a 20% discount waiting for you. So the guys at Raylight have been very generous. So jump on and, and grab some gear um, and, and we'll hopefully see you out there in the mountains in, um, in some of that great kit building up into Ultra Trail Australia. It's the, it's the perfect, uh, perfect time. So little early, little early birthday present for yourselves there, guys. <laughs> Uh, and what's uh, what's next on the agenda for you, Alex? Um, any, any races this year? Any pr- projects in mind? Uh, personally, just yeah, just the Katoomba Mittagong and um, and the twelve foot track for training for that. Um, and where where there is there is talk of the Great North Walk, but um, just trying to figure out how to get there for that um, okay. in terms of training on it. So um, yeah, it's so a bit of a drive. Well, bit of a drive, you know, but. Um, some big FKT stuff, mate. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> at, at the at the old age of thirty-seven, I'm beyond FKTs. I think <laughs> I think that time is gone. No, no one younger than me is allowed to call themselves old. That's my rule. So uh, I'm afraid that doesn't count, mate. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's my excuse anyway. <laughs> All right, it's, a, it's an excuse. I like that. thank you very much for talking to us and jumping on with running matters podcast uh this year and i look forward to some more chats about some exciting new packs coming out in the not too distant future um yeah we'll we'll keep the listeners updated on uh all the developments coming out from raid light so thank you very much mate thank you thanks heaps no worries alex chat soon speak soon bye Okay, thanks Alex. Great info. Don't forget to jump on and have a look at uh, raidlight.com.au and, and use the, the podcast code to grab a 20% discount there, guys. All right, so we, we, we've, done, we've done the track for the first time. We've survived, you know, learned some, learned some lessons. And then you've decided that the next thing to do would be to tick off 
the five races that this company puts together. So different continents, different different challenges there. Can you describe the the race schedule there for us? Yeah, yeah, right. So um, so they run five races. It's called the Continental Challenge. Um, it's a five race series with the premise being there's a hot one, there's a long one, there's a high one, there's a cold one. Um, so they do um, the track, which I've already done, but I wanted to do everything in one in one of their seasons, which is like an 18 month cycle period or cycle. Okay. And they have uh, Ultra Asia, which is um, up in Northwestern Vietnam running through the mountains but in the in the kind of humidity mm. and up in those steep mountains in, in Vietnam. Um, that's done in March. And then May would be um, May would be the track, which is the long one. So that's the longest self supported stage race in the world. Mm. Uh, so that yeah, so that's done in kind of May, June. July they go up to the Lingen Alps, uh, up in Norway. Oh, yeah. And that's up in the Arctic Circle, and it's where they race a lot of the World Sky Racing Championships to give you an idea of the, the climbing. Can we <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Mm. And that's 140k single stage with 9,000 meters of climbing. Mm. So it's punchy. Um, <laughs> to put it mildly. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah. And, uh, apparently, I haven't been out to that one yet, but everything that flies bites okay. is what I've been told up there so perfect I'll note, make a note of that I'm thinking bats no <laughs> I don't know it's light for, for the 24 hours out there so, so. Oh, okay. um, and then I'm just trying to think where I am oh September then is Bolivia so you run up on the Altiplano mm-hmm. up above um, um, altitude, up in, yeah. yeah up in altitude and I think the start I think the start for that is like 3,500 metres wow. so us living at Sea levels. Yeah. That's a big, um, a big ask. I'm putting a plug for base camp altitude now. <coughs> ah. Yeah, it's upstairs, just here. <laughs> oh, perfect. Let's give that a go. Yeah, you'll have to. Yeah, absolutely. And then, uh, and then it finishes off uh, with Ultra Africa, which is in Mozambique okay. in November. Yeah. Um, which is awesome. This is just a stunning race. Really good experience. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah. so we're not, we're not quite there yet covid's got in the way like most things uh so we've ticked off a couple of them yeah so that's why the track happened a second time yeah yeah and then i managed to squeeze in mozambique mm-hmm. um mozambique's a long way from here certainly I know. yeah certainly yeah what, what, what uh what sort of time are we talking how long from door to door to get to mozambique well, i think it only took me 20 20 ish hours 25 hours or so to get out there mm-hmm. but um the day I was traveling back, South African Airlines went under, oh. and that was my only route back. Mm-hmm. So I ended up with about 18 hours of road travel to get to the airport. Um, yeah, so it took me 50, 55 hours or something to get back, straight from the finish line, um, onto a bus. Not in the same clothes, I hope. No, quick change of clothes. Fantastic. Yeah, no, it's uh, good. Yeah. Well, before we, we, we chat about the Mozambique experience a little yeah. bit, I want to just ask about that second crack at the track. Yeah. Um, do, do you think 
I guess having you know good positive mindset and some good mental skills around getting these races done, which yeah. you obviously do. Do you think there's a certain complacency regarding the the training? I guess the physical aspect leading into a race like that. Do you think you can fall into that trap? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that that hits the nail on the head of it. It's kind of there's like a blind ignorance or pig-headed stubbornness. Mm. Um, and also, I mean, it comes back to what I said right at the beginning around self-motivation. Um, I think I think telling people what you're going to do puts an external pressure, kind of puts a bit of external motivation on you mm. um, because it's very visible and you've also got a kind of pretty big support network of people asking, how are your training going? When's your next race? What are you doing? And just sort of, you know, you're not sharing it. You're not sharing these events or these plans with people to show off to them it's about kind of building that supportive environment a bit of accountability there yeah it's yeah. good accountability um, you know it keeps you keeps you modest right keeps you real keeps you honest sorry and um, yeah I think definitely having done a few races having done various or had various approaches to preparation um I wasn't in the right frame of mind to go out in 2019 and I was way off fitness. Um, so um, I think I basically, I'm not the kind of person who trains when they're stressed. Stress for me takes away um, from my ability to put in consistent, effective training. Mm-hmm. Um, and really for those races, you know, that again, it's not, it's not specifically running talent. So you don't have to necessarily be doing what you would do to train for a shorter run. You just need volume mm. in, a, in a way or to a point. And uh, I just find stress. I can go a week and not run. Mm. And, and I'll be like, okay, I just dropped a week. Well, the people who are really at the pointy end of, what, of those races, they'll be, that, that'll be 130, 150, 200 Ks missed for them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely easy to be complacent, and I paid for it in in a pretty big way in that race. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and it sounded like you know physically, you know, cramping from day one, sort of stuff, a difficult sort of yeah, start, and then getting quite sick throughout, I believe. So, can you tell us about that that day? Yeah, um, I think it was day five and day six, which are fifty eight and sixty four k's, and they're the days when you're picking up your new kits, so your heavy bags, and uh, I just couldn't, I couldn't eat anything, I couldn't drink anything, and I couldn't keep anything in my body at all. Um, I, uh, I think it was, I think it was 40 degrees, 58 k's of sand to run, and, uh, and it was really just hanging in and getting it done. It wasn't, it wasn't pretty and it wasn't comfortable. Um, but at the end of the day, I sat down with the doctor and, and you know, I'd basically eaten and drank nothing. Mm-hmm for that for the 12 hours and he said go to bed and we'll see what you like in the morning and when I got up in the morning he came around and checked on me and um, I'd managed to get some food and, and water in so I, not much but I think I'd started to look like I might be getting better mm. and it was enough for him to go yeah all right we'll let you start but you you know we're going to keep checking on you mm-hmm. and they checked in on me for the whole day um, and that's the closest I've been to to DNFing on one of those, one of those stage races because I just had nothing left. 
I was done and I got to a checkpoint and um, a really good mate of mine who I've ran with before who was there crewing, um, Ian Crafter, he just kind of saw the state that I was in and I'd already thrown my bag on the ground and I was off in the forest kind of hiding away um, from people because I just sort of wanted to have a bit of headspace and a bit of time and I decided at that point that I was going to quit and I kind of was angry with myself because I was looking at my watch and I was looking at the deadline and I knew how far I had to go and how tough that stage is and I didn't think I'd left myself enough time to finish even if I changed my mind mm. and Ian um, filled my water up for me from the stop and and eventually when I came out he just walked over and put my bag on my back and said uh, I'll see you at the end you've got this and I did I just, just carried on running mm. and uh, you know if he hadn't pushed me out of that checkpoint I probably would have I definitely would have stopped um, yeah and I just I didn't get I got better um, you know there was no there was no crack hot times or any, yeah, yeah, yeah. any but I got to the end of it and what I learned from that was just just don't do that again you know I had I had all of the opportunity to prepare myself and the knowledge of having done it once before and still didn't prep properly for it and I, yeah, yeah. In, in, interesting and look at it, it happens to everyone I think uh, that, that that fear is a really great motivating factor to train a hell of a lot more and, and if you know that you've gotten through a race and you've survived the fear is just not as much you know so I, I think that's a difficult thing to come by from a motivation standpoint yeah makes sense to me for yeah. sure yeah uh, and I like I like that uh, bit of tough love from your support crew there I think it's a good lesson to people support crewing out there there's no need to ask people how they are they're already thinking that in their mind just tell them to get out there and keep moving to a point <laughs> assuming they're standing yeah. to, a, to a point <laughs> this, is my, this is my wife I'm talking to right now <laughs> she's agreed to crew me for the ultra trail in a couple of months so you know she'll have to listen to this one <laughs> nothing to do with me <laughs> no, that's right that's right uh, so we've had a tough, tough time. You know, we've 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 finished, but we've we've we've, we've had a, a tough couple of weeks. Um, you, you've then taken on some advice. You've you've sought out some coaching and sought out probably the best in the business in Andy Dubois from Mile Twenty Seven. We had a really great chat with him a couple of months ago. He's a very very clever man. Um, how how does he take you from that race and, and then structure something to take you to Mozambique? what a 300 kilometer run yeah um i mean i think i I think when when you're setting goals and when you're trying to achieve something and um you know there's some uncertainty the first thing is who you know who are you you know what be be self-aware and again for like the third time i didn't i'm not good at self-motivation i'm not good at aiming for something and planning and preparing for something that's a long way off um, the way I've tackled that in the past was to break it down and share it with other people and all that kind of stuff where Andy came in was consistency and accountability which were the two things that I didn't have time to build a framework around but Andy's got it he's done it a hundred times a thousand times with very successful people um, so when we had a we had a lengthy conversation um, about why I wanted him to coach me when we started. And there was a couple of things. Firstly, we ran together in the Big Red Run, um, so he knew how I run. Mm. And um, 
and the the second was um, I needed somebody to keep me honest during the weeks, so I didn't ever drop a week. Um, I had I had my program. We had a weekly catch up. It was consistently put together, and every week I was accountable for delivering on the five, six, seven sessions of that week. Mm. That was by far easily the best thing I've ever done for my running mm. um, beyond deciding I wanted to run. Mm. You know, that's, um, yeah. Yeah, it, it just allows you to go out and get the work done without thinking any more of it. You just have to go out and tick that box. So yeah. I think it frees up a lot of headspace for the rest of your life. You yeah, know? absolutely. Yeah. You, yeah, you've got work, you've got kids, you've got, you know, it's getting dark and you've got three hours to do. Yeah. You don't have to worry about what you're going to do. It's written down for you. And yeah. Yeah. It's just get it done. Yeah. Simple. Yeah. No, he's, uh, he's, he's a clever man in good hands there. And so with, with that in mind, how, how did the Mozambique race go? It looks like it was a successful campaign. Yeah. Look, I loved Mozambique as a race. Um, there was a huge amount of sand, which I hadn't really anticipated. Mm-hmm. So I think... I think the first twenty-one k, the first twenty-one k's of the opening day were across sand dunes and then along a beach. Mm-hmm. Um, it was hot and humid. Uh, I think the most striking thing about it was the way people live. You know, you think about um, a, a poor or an econ- economically compromised country. Um, you know, the, the almost everybody was barefoot. Um, the kids were just digging in the in the ground with little sticks and I mean they were still running around and laughing and playing the same as we see kids here mm. but there was you know a real absence of um, kind of middle-aged men because they'd left to go off and work elsewhere to bring money back for the family and there was quite a lot of kind of elderly females in the villages looking after the kids who presumably were grandparents or, or something but it was just the poverty was pretty pretty harsh um, we stayed in a couple of school grounds for two of the nights and we took footballs and pens and pencils and stuff for the kids and you know the, the kids all joined in with our warm-ups or our cool downs or our stretches or whatever and they were just fascinated by mm. by having us around and um, yeah I ran hard it was great it was a, a bunch of people I've ran with in the past and um, you know it's good you get you get out there on the road and you're all in a in bits really by the time you get to sort of day three day four but there's three or four of you running together in a bit of a bit of a squad and Mm. you know someone will push it a little bit someone will push a little bit more and you just kind of you get through the days but it's like that again the camaraderie but without even speaking Mm. because you know some of these people um um don't can't can't speak any english there's a romanian guy who's an incredible runner um but and you've just got there's just this understanding, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, I loved running out there. And um, then I went into to sort of get with Andy's coaching, just the consistency. I could run faster for longer and feel stronger when I got up the next day. Mm-hmm. And the only thing I did wrong there was I got some nutrition wrong, and I woke up on the on the last night, so just before the last day and I was starving, my stomach was rumbling, mm-hmm. I felt weak, and I knew that's how I feel when I'm, you know, when I'm done, when I'm running. And uh, so I had to make a choice, and I, I basically emptied my pack, ate all my food, 
knowing that the next day I had 47 or 48 Ks to go the last stage. And I thought, okay, I'll just, I'll just hang in there for that. I had a half hour buffer on third place. So I was in second place. I wasn't gonna catch first. Um, so I just had to hang on and I had nothing in the tank. I was absolutely cooked by about 20 Ks. And I think I, I dropped my half hour lead plus about another 40 minutes, I think, mm. and just, but got home, good, um, got, got third place there, which I was really happy with, having turned around from the track only four months before. Mm. And uh, yeah, it was good, it was good. And it's a good testament to, to getting some strong coaching and, and, and great guidance from Andy to, to uh, get me to the start line. Yeah, and it's not a lot of time to turn something no. around either. So that's, yeah, it's impressive to have that result. And it's certainly not a lot of calories to be uh, putting into the body on day five or whatever it was. That's, no. Uh, when you're talking about burning through seven, 8,000 and you're putting in almost zero, unfortunately, there's That's only so happens. many Ks you can run on fumes there. Yeah. And, and so I guess after that, you were gearing up to hit Ultra Asia in Vietnam. Yeah, so I would have been going next, to Vietnam. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then the world exploded. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, that's right. I mean, I, when I arrived back into Sydney from Mozambique, the fires were just starting. Okay. So we had all the fires for that period, and then then the flooding in the mountains, and mm-hmm. and then COVID, yeah. and um, yeah. So no no racing since yeah, then. Yeah, it was a, a shit year for most, but certainly for ultra racing, that's for sure. Yeah, that's for sure. So yeah, yeah what was the the mindset like knowing that you couldn't complete that? that task that you'd set yourself for over 18 months? Um, yeah, I mean, it's sort of an interim goal. I, I will go back and finish that mm-hmm. off. Um, they're great races and they're lovely people to, to run with. Um, I just had to find another another way because the way I set the business up was that all of these running adventures, they're, they're kind of the, the way I want to live, mm. but the stories that I get from them and the lessons that I learn about myself are what I use for motivational speaking or mm. for coaching engagements. Yeah. And if you don't have those stories, you kind of got to get them from somewhere else. Yeah, for sure. Um, and there's loads of sort of parallels with the executive world, but I kind of, I think, I think the fun of talking to somebody whose adventures are way outside the norm mm-hmm. is is more fun than going, well, when I was in the office, you know, we could have done this with this project. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, well yeah. great. Um, so that's why I came up with the with the, new, the next adventure, really. Mm-hmm. And that's, the only way I could do it was to keep it inside New South Wales yeah. and do it myself. Yeah. <laughs> so that, well, let's uh, let's chat about the, the hard way home then. It's a good, uh, good intro, mate. So without any racing, we've just made our own race up for adventure, like you say. What's uh, what's what's the premise? What's happening? Okay, so well, the hard way home has ended up being me running on my own, but with a couple of support vehicles from Coburn, which is forty-seven k, is the other side of Broken Hill, out on the South Australia New South Wales border, and just running directly east back to Bondi Beach. Mm-hmm. So it's eleven hundred k's. I don't know why, but I just landed on 11 days and I think it was because that was sort of that was hard but I thought somewhere in my mind when I first thought about it still manageable Mm. 
I have questioned that quite a few times since and, then. And so you should. <laughs> so I should, yes. So I've done, I've organised quite a few, I've sort of planned quite a few of them. I wanted to do Broken Hill to Cameron Corner, which is 475 k's up the Silver City Highway. And I was going to do that about five or six years ago, and it never, I just never came off. And then I wanted to do Broken Hill to Bondi, um, basically by the same route as I'm doing this time around. Um, and then the whole kind of COVID thing set off, and I'm like, well, if I can't leave New South Wales, but I've got all of New South Wales, then why not just go to the border and run home? Mm. And uh, yeah, so that was sort of where it came from. Um, and that then still gives me my adventure, mm. ticks something off the box that I'd really like to do, gives me all the stories that I want for my for, for the business but also continues the opportunity to raise money for the charities that I was working with to do the Continental Challenge. Mm, okay. so, so it sort of ticks some, some big boxes for me. It certainly does. And it's a, it will be an impressive way to tick some boxes, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> can you touch on the charities that you're working with? Yeah, yeah well, so um, the, the Australian Childhood Foundation is the charity that I was doing the Continental Challenge for, with... Um, and they sort of build environments to give sort of love and healing to children who have suffered domestic violence, neglect or abuse. Um, so, you know, COVID has been tough for those people who couldn't get away from home or couldn't get to school, couldn't be with a peer group, or the stresses at home are more than they used to be. And I think also with so many, so much disruption to people's jobs, mm. that same kind of charity giving hasn't been there necessarily, yeah. but the problem still exists. And that's really, so, I mean, this is a good opportunity for, for me to focus on a bit of fundraising for them, which, mm. is, which is a big part of, of um, what I'm doing this time around. Yeah, corporate world has certainly uh, tightened the, the purse strings on that, that sort of channel yeah. stuff. So, yeah, it's great yeah. that people are taking that on, that's for sure. Um, how has the logistical, I guess, preparation been? You've hit a couple of snags from what I've heard. Yeah, so I was at, I was due to drive out to Broken Hill on the 1st of April, which only was two weeks away or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and really the running aspect of this, which I hadn't realized at the time because I've joined into other people's races rather than organize anything myself. Mm-hmm. Um, the running piece of it isn't so, diff- isn't so difficult, isn't the biggest problem. Yeah. The yeah. biggest problem actually has been the logistics. Mm. Um, so uh, I've pushed back now to either June or September. I haven't fa- formalized the, like the next date. Um, but on the basis of just not being able to to pull together um, a substantial enough crew mm. to, to go out there and make it safe. Um, I need to make it safe for myself, but I need also the crew to be safe. Mm. Um, and, you know, if everything works fine, then there's no problem. You know, you can go out there with one car and you drive along the dirt roads and it's not a problem. But you end up with 10 or 20 mils of rain or an injured person or a broken down vehicle or anything else that you would put in that mm-hmm. disaster kind of area needs more people. And I, I just don't feel comfortable going out there and, and risking everybody for the sake of me running across the state. So, yeah, for sure. So we push it back. It'll still happen. It's still exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, 
it's just you know another hurdle in a, a long list. <laughs> There's been plenty of them. I think we're all getting pretty good at hurdling. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it'll happen for sure. Like, um, what about? I guess training for 100 k's a day for 11 days. Are you doing anything different to try to get yourself to those? No, distances? just volume. Yeah, just volume. Yeah. Um. Yeah, that, nothing else. I don't have anything else to say on well, the training, well, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, there's a, there's a really fine line, I think, between doing too much mm-hmm. and not doing enough. Mm. I think, um, well, you'll know more about it than I will already, but running the 100Ks a day isn't, it's not just the running, it's the constant impact and the bruising. Your tendons, your ligaments need to be really strong. Your core needs to be pretty solid. So it's... Mm. You know, I don't have to carry anything, which is great because yeah, that's a novelty for me. Yeah. But just doing that volume consistently, um, yeah, it's just, that'll that'll take its toll. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mate. So I don't want to do too much before I go. No, no, no. Of course, not as long taper. <laughs> six months. Yeah, oh, no. <laughs> not six months. <laughs> no, 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 no. I don't think we'll do that. I don't think we'll do that. I mean, looking into the mindset coaching a little bit. Yeah. Um, You've listed some beliefs that you sort of you live by yourself and try to impart onto other people. I've just picked a few: yeah. self belief, confidence, resilience, and grit and courage, which are a couple of my favourites, I suppose. So, okay. h- how do you uh, how do you instill resilience and, and courage in someone else? And in someone else, yeah. Look, I mean, I think a lot of a lot of the um, a lot of that stuff comes after the courage mm-hmm. for me because the courage is you're in that safe space but you're not living your dream and stepping out of that safe space pushing your boundaries getting outside your comfort zone deciding to do that mm-hmm. is the courageous bit then I think the the resilience and the confidence kind of come hand in hand um, if you take like um, you know, say you're a non-runner, and I say to you, um, "Let's go out and run ten k's." Mm. You can be like, uh, "No, yeah. don't be ridiculous." Yeah. <laughs> but you are a very well-accomplished long-distance runner, and I say, "Let's go out and run ten k's." You're gonna go, "Yeah, fine, no problem at all," because you're competent, mm. you're capable of doing it, and you already know that, so you're confident. The way that you would get that confidence is to increase your competence, so you mm-hmm. keep training. And you keep learning. So you say you've got this big goal and you don't know if you can do it. Well, what what's the 80% of the things that you can control today that you already know will help you move forward? And then of that 20%, what can you learn? And then schedule your learning. So you're going, okay, I've got this goal that's in six months' time. So I'm going to run a marathon or I'm going to open my new business. What do you need to learn to be able to do that you don't already have the skill set for now? Mm-hmm. And if you want, you know, you know, that, so that's sort of one part of it. The piece that pushes the resilience along for me is why do you want it? And if you want it enough, you're going to be prepared to take on a little bit more pain or fail and try again a little bit more than you would if it's something that you don't really want. Mm-hmm. And that's, so when I had my executive coach, we went through a lot of, I, he said to me, what do you want to do? And I didn't know, but I had a whole list of things I didn't want. 
and we used that list of things that I didn't want to push me to do one of the things that I did want. And it wasn't, I want to be a doctor. It was, I don't want to work in an office and I don't want to do this and I don't want to do that. And there wasn't really a lot left after I'd kind of <laughs> got rid of all that stuff. But what it what that does is, why am I doing it? Why is that so important to me to achieve it? What can I already do that gives me comfort and builds that platform for me to to jump from? And then what does jumping mean? Well, I need to learn X, Y, and Z, and I'm going to learn X this month. And once I've got that, I'm going to have a big party, and, mm. and then I'm going to do Y, and then when I get that, I'm going to do something else. You know, and it's just, mm. it's moving forward every day and every day looking at it and going, am I doing this to move me forward to where I want to be or is this a distraction? If it's a distraction, don't do it. If it's something that takes away from where you're trying to go, don't do it. If it's something that takes you towards it but maybe more slowly than you wanted to do, just do it. Just mm. get it done. And, you know, the courage is the hardest bit and that really is, you know, talking to somebody who can get you to the point where you really want it yeah. and you understand why. Yeah, I think talking to people who've done it before helps in a sense that, you know, someone's done it before, you know, and I'm looking at this person, I'm chatting in this person, they don't seem like a superhero, they can just, you know, tick off those boxes and perform that framework and then they've done that. Yeah. And so, I, yeah, I think, I think you're right, reaching out to people and getting some advice in that sense is a really valuable yeah. valuable thing yeah and get some they've you know the same at the same time while you're asking questions you're also starting to build up that supportive team around you you know they don't have to be in your team but you know they they're on side you can reach you know. out yeah yeah for sure i've got um just just three lines that you used on your website that i really <laughs> like and it's related to uh, it's related to a junior netball team, funnily oh, enough, but yeah. it certainly relates to, to running and life in general. And the questions are, why do you play? Do you deserve to be here? And have you prepared enough? And they're really such simple, easy sort of boxes to tick. And, and, and that, I guess, would provide, you know, courage and resilience, knowing that you've, you're in the right place, you've done the right work. You should be happy to stand on the start line of whatever it is and, and, and perform whatever it is. So, yeah, yeah really, some really good stuff there on the, on the website if anyone wants to have a look. Um, and how, how can people find you and, and, you know, pull you into their team, so to speak? Um, yeah, I'm on all the social media stuff at, at uh, Jamie Hildage. And then my website is www.jamiehildage.com. Yeah. And, and that has some links to the Hard Way Home and the Australian Childhood Foundation there. Yeah, so, yeah, it does. Yeah. yeah, easy, yeah. To, easy to find, mate. Easy to find. Yeah. Well, mate, thank you very much for your time. Some, some great information, that's for sure. And we're all behind you uh, from Buckerberg through to Bondi. We'll be watching the progress uh, slowly but surely. That's yeah, very exciting, mate. That's great. Thanks very much for having me on. It's been uh, been really good chatting. No, no problem at all. We'll see you out there on those tracks, Jamie. Yeah, definitely. Thanks, Thanks very much, Paul. Cheers. Cheers.